It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house them in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. On today's programme, we'll be joined by the Conservative MP, Alex Shelbrook, to discuss the politics of the spring statement and whether we should worry about a fifth wave of COVID with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. So it's the day of the spring statement. Not a big budget, but the stakes are high for the Chancellor Rishi Sunak as he comes under pressure from MPs on both sides of the House to help ease the burden of the soaring cost of living. Underscoring his challenge, inflation has risen again to a fresh 30-year high. Consumer prices rose by a faster-than-expected 6.2% in the years of February after the ONS described widespread price increases. Well, with rising prices, war in Ukraine and a drive to get back to normal, it's almost easy to forget the devastation of the pandemic and lockdowns. But cast your mind back to March 2020. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Because the critical thing we must do to stop the disease spreading between households Well, it's exactly two years since Boris Johnson announced the first lockdown here, dramatically changing life as we knew it. In the UK, more than 188,000 people have died where COVID was mentioned on their death certificate. With deaths and hospitalisations falling significantly since the use of vaccines, case numbers, though, are again surging across Europe with more than 200,000 new infections reported in the UK just on Tuesday. Rising food, fuel and energy costs presents a challenging backdrop for the Chancellor's spring statement, perhaps more so given voters benefited from emergency financial support during the pandemic. Well, let's discuss that and the day's other big issues with Alex Shelbrook, Conservative MP for Elmit and Rothwell in West Yorkshire. Alex, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster today. Now, what's your feeling about where the balance of tax and spending is right now? Should the government be spending more to help households or should they be looking after their cash, given that debt interest is is rising very rapidly at the moment and the economy is probably uh, set to worsen this year? Well, as you sort of say, there's a fine balance to be had. Um, I, I think one of the points we've got to be careful to recognise here is that we haven't actually got a 2.2 trillion debt of 100% of GDP. We owe about 1.1 trillion to our foreign debtors. The rest is um, quantitative easing within the Bank of England. And I think to a certain extent, there is some wiggle room there. I think fundamentally, 
yes, we're going to have interest payments on the debt. We're going to have to manage that. But all of these economic and fiscal questions will pale into absolute insignificance if people just simply cannot afford to pay for their energy. And then the first consequence of that will be money will be coming out of the economy because people won't be going out, they won't be going to restaurants. And when you think about the demographic of the country that tends to do that, that will be a significant withdrawal of money from the economy. So what may look like, well, I can't do much here because um, of the potential um, interest rates rising and things like that, needs to be balanced up against the fact of just how much a corporation and um, business taxes will be lost. And then, of course, if they start to make people unemployed, no tax, no, no national insurance, and, of course, benefits. So there is a fine balance to be had and not a straightforward linear equation. OK, so you essentially are advocating for more spending then. I mean, the Chancellor has vowed to cut taxes. On the other hand, taxes are going up to levels that we last saw in the 1950s. You can't be a standby voter chancellor, stand by me, the message, and then do the opposite, can you? So I think, um, first of all, we have to recognise that, yes, of course, we've got an exceptionally high taxation level. Um, it is comparable as, to the decades you've mentioned, but, of course, we've had exactly those unprecedented um, situations as we have preceding um, that taxation level. And I think that it is a mistake, I think, um, both politically and analytically for the opposition to say, well, you know, the, the, the figures have never been so high. People recognise why that is. I think the problem at the moment is is that it is important to try and show you've got spending under control and get the books back in order. But the emergency situation of the last two years is an extension now because of we've got a war, because we know of the knock-on effects. And I think that the, the key point in all of this is is that if we go back to inflationary pressures on the British economy decades ago, they tended to be a problem with the British economy. Now these inflationary pressures are worldwide, and therefore the levers to actually try and um, reduce those are, are not really there. And for the period of time where we've got to try and make sure that people can survive, we may have to do things which we, we really didn't consider to ever be a viable option in the past. You represent a, a fairly rural part of West Yorkshire. Petrol prices, no doubt, uh, are painful for your, for your constituents. I can see how it would be politically uh, sensible to, to cut uh, duty on petrol and diesel, but wouldn't it be better uh, to perhaps um, cut energy prices for, for everybody, including those who haven't got cars? And what about energy conservation, turning down thermostats, saving fuel? Shouldn't the message go out that we should uh, do those things first? So I think actually, first of all, just in terms of the energy conservation, I think most people are already doing that. I mean, for example, if the Chancellor was to say to remove all the eco-taxes and the VAT, so let's say we get roughly 20% reduction on the gas bill, the gas bill or dual energy bill will still have significantly gone up. And um, I think people are turning the thermostat down. They are reducing the amount of time the heat is on because they recognise um, that they, they simply are going to struggle to afford it. So even if you do cut the taxes and took every single tax off, I still think people are doing that. In terms of this question between um, do you take off energy prices, do you take off fuel? Well, of course, it's not just the car owner who um, would see the benefit of that because it's feeding into the haulage industry, the transport prices. That's going to have a direct effect on food in the shops it's going to go into bus prices train prices it it's a it's a it's a taxation that actually hits the economy far more than just the people putting the fuel into their cars um where should the balance lie 
I'm not sure yet because um, I think that there is an argument, I've said this one before, that actually at the moment perhaps you do take all the eco-taxes off the energy and put them into um, general taxation um, because there are contracts that have to be honoured around that because if we get into a situation where people simply cannot afford, and I'm not talking actually about the poorest people, I'm talking about people who may be on middle incomes, you know, they've gone up, they're tripling. People are having to find another £400 a month. That's a huge sum of money. Mm, It's an expensive problem. I want to stay on this subject of energy, actually. Both parties agree that we need to expand uh, renewables, but there's reportedly a a split in Cabinet over onshore wind. Uh, Mm. Labour's Ben Bradshaw told us yesterday he'd like to see a big increase in cheap and relatively quick to build wind power, onshore wind power. Do you agree with him? I don't think there's such a thing as quick to build because I think I've seen it over the decades I've been involved in politics. It gets held up in the planning system um, and nothing gets done quickly in the planning system in this country regardless of what the uh, legislation says. I think that we've established a huge offshore wind industry in this country worth billions of pounds, employing hundreds of thousands of people and I'd like to see a a rapid expansion of that even further where you've first of all got almost a guaranteed um, energy source out at sea. And I think that that's where the focus could be, because I think that you can see people saying, well, we could utilise more of the land to do wind. But once you put into all of the planning process and everything else that goes in this country, that's not a quick solution. Okay, so that um, on the energy issues. A couple of other um, big problems, though, that I want to touch on briefly, Alec. Firstly, on refugees, you called the government's response on Ukrainian refugees a disgrace. There is at least a plan now. Do you really think the UK is doing enough, though? I mean, you've got 10 million people, almost a quarter of the population of Ukraine displaced, millions in Europe and only a few thousand here, barely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, um, you know, I was obviously very pleased that after we made those comments that uh, by the following week we had the um, schemes announced. But obviously there's still a lot of question marks about the technical sides of um, of those schemes. And, and this is where my frustration came out when I said the responsibility disgrace, when I said to the minister, you need to go back to the Home Office and tell them to get a grip. I think the problem is, is that the Home Office is still operating a peacetime operation in a wartime. Um, I think the the Prime Minister's given them the instructions hundreds of thousands. The Home Secretary's given the instruction of how it needs to happen. This now just is a case of how do you process it. And one of the things which um, I've been told anecdotally is that all the forms are in English. There, there isn't any um, Ukrainian um, forms because going to the Home Office, well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't understand them back in the office. Well, I mean, I'm not being funny, but it really isn't difficult these days to hit a computer program which can translate it immediately. And um, I I think these excuses that keep coming out is what's holding the thing up. What I will say is, is that I don't think um, it is right to say that we're dragging our feet and not doing lots because we're obviously okay. putting hundreds of billions of pounds into um, the front line but we definitely want to I mean my wife and I have signed up for the refugee scheme mm. so we'll have to see how quickly it moves forward and just briefly on uh, Covid it looks like we're, we're, another a wave is hitting the country uh, the Omicron uh, sub variant are, are you concerned about about the about the latest Covid cases well, I think we should always be concerned but I don't think we should overreact and I think that um, one thing which struck me, which I learnt in the um, shut lockdowns and the pandemics and work from home, 
It's just how many constituents I've got whose businesses rely on the footfall in Leeds City Centre. And um, they really, really struggled. So although sometimes, oh, well, we better all start working from home again. Well, actually, there is a huge economic impact on the small business owners um, who, who rely on a, a functioning economy. So I think it's really important that we don't rush into any decision because I do believe that we've got to learn to live with the disease. And, you know, we you know, can see 20,000 die from flu. We don't lock it down, but we must, um, we must monitor the situation carefully. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's James Wilcock today. So lots, of course, on the spring statement, but there's other stuff happening in Westminster and particularly on tariffs, this deal between the UK and the US. Uh, It's been a long time coming. It has. It has, Caroline. And it's worth just unpacking because it's quite a complex, layered story that goes back quite a few years, right back to the Brexit referendum, where right after they said there'd be a free trade agreement with the US coming down the line. It's worth saying in the press conference yesterday, uh, the US sort of trade secretary was like not very sort of forthcoming on that. But they have agreed to drop 25% tariffs on steel and 10% tariffs on aluminum. And that will partly help tweeze inflation in the US. It's also designed to combat Chinese influence. And this is where the story becomes a bit more layered yet again. The EU agreed this deal at the end of 2021. And the other side of it is steel companies use large amounts of energy, which I'm sure relates back to your chat with your previous MP. But the, and the other side, yet again, is there is a company called British Steel, which is Chinese owned. Yes. And these companies will have to audit themselves to see quite how China related they are to be able to take advantage of this new measure. So it all kind of adds up to a win for the government on a big day that will help ease its current crises, but kind of ties back into the many struggles they've been facing along the way. Now, a bit of controversy over the use of uh, WhatsApp. It doesn't sound controversial in itself, but uh, Boris Johnson apparently getting his government papers uh, via the messaging app. I mean, we all get stuff over WhatsApp these days, Ewan, but I think the thing that sort of brought this story to light, it comes back to the COVID inquiry. It comes back to the Good Law Project, and what they're trying to say is, if you get everything over WhatsApp, are there any public records? And this kind of issue came to the fore with the whole Cummingsgate and mm. Partygate scandals, in that Dominic Cummings was releasing all these texts that he supposedly had with the Prime Minister, and there was no government record to either set them straight or deny them, because it was found out that Boris Johnson's public phone number had 
had been on the web since 2006. And so in April 2021, he deleted his phone and wiped all these messages. So there is no record of quite what he said. And so that has now been going through the courts and it's been found out that since November 2020, Johnson's been receiving brief, brief sort of uh, uh, abbreviated briefings via WhatsApp. Um, and that has led to questions about, like, how is government running? Should it be done online? Should it be? Is it secure? And also quite how much information is going to be saved in case there's any sort of COVID inquiry or any other inquiry, uh, which is where I sort of cough and say Partygate, that could be coming up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, dare, dare one say, uh, you know, whole issues around email to do with previous US presidential elections. So, you know, this idea of data storage, it can be really pretty uh, vital, can't it? And, and what we have access. Access to James, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg's James Walcock. So it is the day of the spring statement. It's not a big budget, but it is a big moment for Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Inflation at uh, 6.2%, another fresh 30-year high uh, for CPI. Let's bring in our Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, Therese Raphael. Now, Therese, you've been uh, uh, analysing the uh, political problems uh, for the Chancellor and the Tories over the spring statement. Just uh, bring us up to date with what you've been looking into. Well, it's such a different picture from what we had back in October when the outlook was, you know, a decent economic recovery, sort of medium economic growth, not tremendous, but, you know, uh, you know, also, you know, nothing to sneeze at. And inflation was set to be relatively high, sort of four and a half percent. And since then, you know, we're in a different world. Supply chain problems has worsen massively. Energy prices are way up. We're looking at the highest inflation rate since 1992, maybe as high as 8% in April, which is, you know, twice the OBR forecast back in October. So, you know, it's unlikely that wage growth is going to match that, which means, of course, uh, a big cost of living squeeze. We're already seeing that. Uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies and other have warned that households um, are really going to to struggle at the lower end of the the income scale this winter. So, you know, the the problem for the chancellor is, you know, here is a Thatcherite chancellor who's wanted to cut taxes to have a relatively restrained government, but Mm. forced by the COVID pandemic into, you know, expanding government, huge largesse hoping to be able to roll it back now. But here we've got, you know, the, the, the double whammy of uh, an energy and supply chain crisis and then the Ukraine war on top of that, which has made matters a lot worse. It's, it's disrupted Ukraine's ability to supply grain to the world. It's made energy prices mm-hmm. uh, spike even higher. And so what does he do? Now, he, he has some levers that, that he can use, but he also needs to hold uh, some measures in reserve so that he can you know, give voters something before a future elect, uh, election. So therein lies the, the, the problem for the chancellor um, and, and the needle he has to thread in today's budget statement. Yeah, and Therese, I don't know whether this has crossed your mind, but t- to, to me it has. The idea that actually the government is at something of a crossroads, this is just an incredibly difficult moment, isn't it? And you can see it from the sort of plethora of ideas that there are. And when for example, we spoke to uh, Alex Shelbrook, um, LP, just earlier uh, on the programme. There is kind of a moment of genuinely looking for the path forward. And I think perhaps this problem then is kicked down the road to the autumn budget, isn't it? Because do we raise petrol prices? What about green taxes, national insurance taxes, universal credit, business taxes? There's a, a genuine kind of divide and and sort of plethora of ideas about where we are now in terms of dealing with the economy and helping voters. 
Yeah, in many ways, you know, they, they can't but kick some things down to the road because there's no way to really know what's going to happen with energy prices in the autumn. So we know that, you know, the price cap for consumers is set twice a year. We've got a big rise in April, but it's likely to go up enormously again in October if we see that price cap rising to, say, you know, um, 3000 uh, pounds a year, that would just, you know, it could throw the, the, the UK economy into recession. So there's, there's an element of needing to wait and see. But I agree with the idea that this is a moment where government has to define what it, where are its priorities. Mm. And, and you know, that really speaks to the question of what is the role of government, both in kind of smoothing the, the you know, moments of extreme volatility like this, but just in the lives of, you know, the economic life of, of voters. And um, where do they, you know, where do they actually, do they provide relief at the lower end of the, of the income spectrum? Do they, for example, you know, reduce the fuel tax? Well, you know, that might benefit, you know, people who drive big SUVs more than it benefits, um, you know, many others. And once you reduce the fuel tax, could you ever bring it back up? I mean, I think that, you know, we, we've seen uh, fuel prices, you know, frozen for, you know, for a, a dozen years or so. It's going to be very, very hard to then recover that. Of course, you know, the government does, you know, is going to need to find other ways of getting that revenue as the economy moves to electric vehicles. But there are just huge questions here. And, you know, the, I think we also have to factor in the political pressure now from the Tory backbenches, from other, you know, parts of the political spectrum, even the, the, the further to the right, the sort of Nigel Farage's, uh, to back off the net zero uh, yes. plan. Mm. And that is, I think, you know, in some ways, that's the new Brexit uh, coming, uh, you know, up on, uh, on the horizon. Uh, because when it comes to, you know, people being able to afford to heat their homes, um, you know, versus uh, moving toward uh, toward net zero, the government's going to have some difficult choices to make and some hard, uh, you know, questions on how it how it works. The messaging on that mm, really tricky. To just know where the economy is going to be come the end of twenty twenty two, and indeed where the government's finances uh, will lie. So, something else uh, that's uh, very tricky to predict. So you've written a nice piece with uh, Sam Fazelli from Bloomberg Intelligence about a fifth. COVID wave. Um, and you argue that for many European countries, BA2, the Omicron subvariant, perhaps will not be as bad as some of the waves we've seen in the past. Yeah, well, we're seeing a very different COVID picture depending on where you are. So, and, and much of that, um, the, the factors that impact just how uh, seriously the, this BA2 is, is affecting a country tend to be as you know, we've discussed many times in the past, what are the rates of vaccination and natural levels of immunity? How effective are the vaccines in use? So, you know, at the worst end of the spectrum is what we're seeing in Hong Kong, um, and I think coming in China, where you have you know fairly low rates of vaccination, especially among the elderly. Uh, you in, in China, you have vaccines with lower levels of, of effectiveness, waning immunity, and the problem is massive as they try to exit the zero COVID policy um, and, you know, are faced really with a healthcare system that will struggle to cope. In Britain, I think what we saw was a lifting of restrictions. And with that massive change in attitudes where you can, you know, walk out on the streets and people are in the pubs or in the, the restaurants, it's sort of, you know, we've kind of forgotten what it was like to put on mm. a mask in many places. And that's, that coincided with a rise of you know, BA2 
2, which is the, the Omicron subvariant cases. And so we've seen cases spike and some increase in hospitalization. Most of the hospitalization is not people being hospitalized with COVID or for COVID, but, but actually as, as COVID is an incidental factor. But still, you know, there are costs to that. There are costs in, uh, you know, children out of school. My daughter was out for a week recently. Um, there are costs to loss productivity, uh, their costs in terms of long COVID. And I think the U.S. is about to get hit pretty hard as well. It had a bigger wave of Omicron 1. So, you know, we could argue that it, that probably affected a, a larger proportion of the U.S. population. So there might be some immunity that limits the duration of the this next Omicron wave. But, you know, the U.S. can't afford to be too relaxed either because its vaccine coverage is not as good as in most U.S. Uh, European countries, and Congress just cut $15 billion of aid and coronavirus funding that is going to hurt the ability to protect the most vulnerable there. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.